Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, where each week we speak with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of today's markets. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd. September corn closed up 26 and a half cents at 6.60 even. December 22 corn closed up 26 and a quarter cents at 6.55 and a quarter. September beans closed up 39 and three quarter cents at 15.66 and three quarters. And November 22 beans closed up 25 and three quarter cents at 14.61 even. Turning to our guest this week, it's our privilege to have Joe Kearns with us. Joe is the founder and CEO of Partners for Production Agriculture, now a member of the Everag family of companies. Joe's worked across the entire supply chain for over 30 years, assisting clients with procurement and risk management. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. It's nice to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me today. Joe, you live in Ames, Iowa, the heart of the Corn Belt. It's too bad you guys don't have a football team down there. Good thing you can grow some corn. (laughs) Um, We always like to ask this time of year because everyone's curious, how do the crops in your immediate area look, Joe? Uh, In the immediate area, they're actually pretty good. So if you would go from where we are, and we are, you're right, dead center in the middle of the state, over to the east, it's probably the best looking crops that we've got. So uh, once you get a little further west towards the Dakotas, if you've been following this this, uh, pro farmer tour, things get a little tougher the further west you go. And the state of Iowa is also kind of that almost that dividing line where the eastern side of our state looks more like Illinois, which uh, probably has a record in certain regions. And the western side was a little bit drier. All in all, our record yield was in uh, 2017 at 206 bushels to the acre. I suspect we'll come in slightly below that, but it'll still be a fantastic crop when we're all said and done. Excellent. Well, we're glad to hear that. Partners for Production Ag works across a wide range of clients, but you may be best known for your work in the hog space. Markets have traded a really wide range this year. So how are hog producers reacting to the current grain market conditions? And you are right. We've, we've had some volatility inside the hog market as well as the grain market. So they've been independent of one another uh, by and large. When you really study the economics of the pork side is the revenue component, i.e. how much I get paid for my, for my animal or for the pork that we market is the absolute dominant factor. And, and I'll, I'll occasionally, when I give a speech, go through an exercise of, well, what if we just double the price of everything? And and certainly if you double the price of corn, it's going to have a negative impact or soybean meal. But if you double the price of the revenue side, it completely dwarfs everything else. And so we are a revenue-driven business. We can afford to pay $8 a bushel for corn day in, day out, as long as hogs are trading in some type of triple-digit fashion, which they largely have been for the bulk of this year. And so I almost hate to say it, but uh, pork production is almost independent of the price of grain. Now, that's not obviously true in and by itself, but as long as I've got good grain markets, which has largely been characterized this year, I can afford to pay whatever I need to for the corn and, and keep production moving forward. That's interesting to hear. And obviously, uh, you know, great for the hog producers if we can keep those prices higher and they can generate positive returns. Logistics have been an issue across the entire world and here in the U.S. and in the ag markets, we're not immune to that. Have your clients experienced any issues with both the availability to own corn, soybean meal, any part of their ration or receive timely shipments on the farm? 
Yeah, and there's, you're, that's a great point. The further you get away, obviously, from the Corn Belt, when you talk about our staples, corn and soybean meal, uh, you're going to start to encounter the difficulties that, that you reference. Uh, we, we all went through a spell here, oh, probably 12 months or so ago, where amino acids were tight. That was not geographically displaced. That was tight across the entire industry. The basis is uh, tight. I think it's going to remain tight. I think we're in an era of redefining where production agriculture takes place, uh, meaning that we start to to come back to the Corn Belt. Keep in mind here, this I'm going to throw out a time frame. 25 years ago, somebody came up with this great idea about biosecurity in far-flung places, and it, it worked. It worked really, really well. This is going to be the counter of that, is, is you simply can't afford to have a mediocre production in areas that are characterized by $1.75 over corn. It's just not going to work. You're not going to be competitive long-term with areas that are more densely populated. And this goes through all of agriculture. This is not species independent whatsoever. And I and I do think that you're going to see a return back to dairies coming to the Wisconsin's and out of the Californias, pork production coming back to the Midwest. Out, uh, You're not seeing any expansion whatsoever in the Carolinas. Smithfield just recently announced that they, that they are shuttering their Utah operations. They've also sold their processing plant in California. So to to say that I'm clairvoyant about this would be a little disingenuous. We're already starting to see it, but I do think that it's going to continue to play out over time. So as a result of of some of the logistical issues and your comments on just you know, where we may continue to see expansion and growth and relocation in our industry, are you seeing producers make any dramatic changes in their rations to accommodate some of these global grain supply issues? Not so much. And, and keep in mind, I mean, we're, we're all going to utilize a least cost regression formulation analysis. And if, if you'd have the, the lack of availability of a certain feedstuff or component, certainly you're going to substitute, but you're always going to allow economics to dictate your behavior. Now I say that, and I'll also share with you that I think we are getting ready to go through the most transformative development developments in all of our rations here in the next couple of years, and that's largely on the back of renewable diesel and what that's going to mean for a ration, what it's going to mean for soybean displacement. Soybean meals should get incredibly discounted relative to the oil value, and we haven't seen that in a sustained value. Matter of fact, we've not seen it to this degree since 1993. It was the last time we really had oil as the driver, and we've not seen a sustained area where oil wants to continue to be the driver, and we are going to go running headlong into that occasion. It looks like we're going to have oh, someplace in the neighborhood of 750 million bushels of demand added to our domestic sheet just with the processing plants that are currently being erected to serve that renewable diesel industry. And all that surplus soybean meals got to go someplace. And animal agriculture looks to be the recipient. And if I had to stratify this, I would tell you that anything with feathers, uh, the, the avian, whether it's layers, broilers, turkeys, whatever it might be, will be the biggest beneficiaries. That intact amino acid with those sulfur compounds is going to be immediately absorbed by the poultry industry. The hogs sit someplace below that. And then you start to get into the ruminants and the magic of that rumen with with the ability to to ferment and to create some of its own energy with with some lesser feedstuff is going to get left out of this particular wave 
I, I think the rumen comes back into play in a completely different way that we could perhaps talk about later. And that is what happens when we back off corn acres because of sustained drought situations and all you can produce is hay. And that's what makes it good for that rumen and animal, of course. But, but in direct answer to your question, we have not seen anything that I would call real pronounced. We've seen some shifts within the ration, but the big, big changes are two years out. So that begs the question, do you think that the U.S. starts to eventually move into a model more like, say, Argentina, where we're an exporter of soybean meal instead of the raw soybean product itself? Yeah, that's exactly where we're going. And you bring up a great point. Argentina supplies about 40% of the world's soybean meal right now. And it's got to do with with largely because of tax structure, not because of of the infrastructure that I just described. But we're going to be in a dogfight with the Argentinians. And we we are ill-prepared at this point in time. We don't have enough deep water ports to sustain an export program and getting meaningful effort that can be developed over time. But I do believe that long term, that is what our future looks like, is uh, we as animal agriculture are going to decide whether or not we allow soybean meal to exit the United States. It'll all be driven by economics. Switching gears a bit, but staying in this thought of a global marketplace that we now operate in, China continues to be a talking point within the markets. There remains maybe more questions than answers in a lot of cases. We've started to see signs that point towards weakness in their overall economy and the impact that that may have on their demand for U.S. grains. How is China's feed and grain demand evolving or how do you see it evolving as it pertains to their current economic situation and also as they work to rebuild their hog herd to pre-ASF levels? You're leaving out the part that I would find most important on this and maybe doing so intentionally in that you've got uh, an incredible heat wave coming across China also right now. So you're not only attempting to rebound from COVID scenarios, you've got economic compression brought in largely because of governmental intervention and how they're handling the COVID situation. And now you've got some supply restriction also of grains. And so trying to isolate out and figure out what's going to be the drivers, I think uh, going to be very difficult. If I had to place odds on this, I would say that the demand component and the destruction that we've seen will be the predominant piece from a political standpoint. Also, we are not endearing ourselves into the into the Chinese populace with uh, some of the visits that we've had to Taiwan of delegations. And so I think even if they do come back, we are going to be at the back of the bus. Now, I think we were already there. We were already, if I can't buy it from anybody else, then I will come to the United States. But I think we're, we'll see that exacerbated here over time that we will, we being the United States, will be the last bastion of supply going into China. The the Ukraine situation that would be the normal flow has also obviously been incredibly restricted. You've got onesie twosie boats coming out of there. It's great for for a show. It doesn't do a doggone thing as far as world supply is concerned. And so I think that uh, the, the Chinese economy is in trouble. The leaders within China are very astute to their geopolitical position and what it means and, and how they can control a populace much, much better than any democracy can. So therefore, I don't think we can think in in U.S.-centric terms. You mentioned China's weather, and that's been in the news a lot lately here, as we've got some areas not only struggling with heat, but also with drought conditions. We could even expand that and say the EU is kind of experiencing a similar scenario where we've got tremendous dryness, record heat. How do you foresee that impacting 
the global grain trade. Well, obviously, we're going to compress what the supply looks like, and then you've got the demand component that's going to have to be addressed. So the one that uh, that we didn't talk about yet, and that is, what about South America? And we are we are setting up a scenario where where every incentive is, is for both Brazil and Argentina, and to a lesser degree Uruguay, in order to produce just as physically much as they possibly can. The huge fly in the ointment, of course, is going to be what do you do with access to fertilizer? And fertilizer is is directly correlated with the price of energy and the price of energy being high and the and fertilizer being uh, uh, perhaps unavailable depending upon which region of the globe that you sit on. The United States, quite frankly, is actually in really, really good shape compared to everybody else. Is That's where I would see that playing out. So if if I am contemplating a large purchase and I think, goodness, I can hold out for another six months in order to get to Brazilian harvest and at least give it a chance, that's probably what I would do. So I would say uh, that you're going to see more inverses uh, throughout the, the late fall and early spring. You could see some unprecedented things occurring. You've got a seven cent or so carry right now from Dees to March corn. I would suspect that that evaporates uh, shortly after we get through the bulk of harvest. So I I would expect Dees March to actually trade at an inverse by the time we get to, by the time we take December off the board, because we're going to be in an environment that's characterized by exactly what you said, that the Northern Hemisphere is devoid of stocks, absent whatever the United States is, and we're waiting for the Southern Hemisphere to come back around. We've got a lot of things at play in this market. Well said, that's for sure. It feels like there's more variables, not only directly involving production agriculture, but also peripheral to us that have an impact on us than ever before, maybe. So as you're working with clients, both producers and consumers, how do you help them manage all this risk in unknown? So I, I think a, a big part of it is taking a look at your pro forma. And, and I'm, I'm going to back up here just a little bit. A few years ago, I, uh, I needed to take some, some additional classes. So I took some statistics, some graduate level statistics classes down at Texas A&M University. And it was a summer program. It was kind of a cram program. It hurt my head tremendously just going through it all. But I came from a grain commodity background and you had other people there. It was an agricultural course but they were largely from John Deere or chemical companies or some uh, some ancillary field around agriculture. And it, and it became quickly apparent that we in production agriculture have a huge benefit at our avail. And that is, by and large, our revenue products are characterized by an active board of trade that we can that we can slough off risk, and our input markets, whether it's corn and soy, are also very active. And so, and inside there, you've got options trade, which then backs into a Black and Scholes regression model, and we got into all the math. But it was fascinating. But the John Deere guys were saying, "Oh my goodness, if we just had some way to forecast what our sales were going to be, rather than indexing off the price of corn, which is their best corollary as we speak." right now, which which would mean producer profitability would drive purchases, they would be in heaven. It's like, we've got that. We, we can go 18 months out into the future and trade futures or options and know what the standard deviation look like, which is the holy grail of predicting anything. So if we roll that together, when we get into times of uncertainty, and whether it's global uncertainty that we've recently gone through with a COVID pandemic, whether it's a Putin invasion of Ukraine that adds to some economic uncertainty, 
we have a way to take a forward look out and said, if I if I execute right now, if I buy my inputs and sell my revenue, I am guaranteed that if my production level is at some static level that I'm going to make money or, or whatever money I'm going to lose, I can lock that in. And that's what we do. So, so we are very, very encouraging of our producers to use the available tools that they've got, whether that's swaps, futures, options, insurance, or, or a combination therein in order to lock in their revenue side, secure their inputs uh, as needed, and therefore rest a little easier at night, at least for a duration. Uh, 12 to 18 months into the futures is about as far as we can go. You can do the grain side a little bit further than that, but the revenue side is kind of the, the preventative piece on that one. But we do our best in order to avail them to those tools so they can have a secure future. Joe, this has been a very insightful and encouraging conversation. I really appreciate you joining us this week on From the Furrow. Joe, for any of our listeners who would like to continue this conversation and learn more about Partners for Production and Ag, how can they best get a hold of you? You are readily available on the website, either through our own or through the EverAg side of it, or we can reach out at any time. We're at 515-268-8888. And anybody that happens to be in central Iowa, go Cyclones, and we're welcome to the office at any point. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for joining us. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend or two. Please feel free to contact us anytime as we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you to Paige and Corey for helping to produce, mix, and master this production. 